Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Chapter 5 of King and Baronage, A.D. 1135 to 1327 by William Holden Hutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Reign of Henry III, 1216 to 1272. John had left five young children. Of these, two were boys. The elder, Henry, was just nine years old when his father died, and his brother Richard was two years younger. It was well for England that the heir of the evil king was an innocent child. The strong party which had invited Louis and was pledged to support him, and which would certainly have soon overcome the mercenaries of John, had no liking for the Frenchmen save as a champion against the tyranny of their hated sovereign. Louis had married Blanche, the granddaughter of Henry II, and in default of a better candidate he might have been accepted as king. But the claim of a child had far more to recommend it. The barons knew that they could hold the government themselves till he was grown up, and they thought they could give a direction to the policy of the crown which it would not be easy afterwards to alter. The young Henry they had in their own hands. Louis as king meant the great Philip to reckon with, and it might be that England would be again drawn at the chariot wheels of a foreign power. The barons had learnt that they were Englishmen, and were soon ready to claim England for the English. On October 28, 1216, the young Henry was crowned at Gloucester. The Pope's legate Juallo, Peter de Rush, Bishop of Winchester, whom John had made justiciar after the death of Geoffrey Fitzpeter, William, Earl of Pembroke, the Marshal, and some faithful barons stood by him. They wisely showed that they intended to rule as the nation willed, by reissuing the Great Charter, leaving out, however, the articles which provided that taxation should only be granted by the Great Council. Louis, on the other hand, showed signs that he intended to rule England as a French province, and when he went back to France to gather more troops, many of the English who had before followed him went over to the side of Henry III. The new pope, Honorius III, took up very strongly the side of the young king, 
as a vassal of Rome, and recognized the great charter which Innocent III had condemned. So on April 18, 1217, the legate excommunicated Louis and the barons who supported him. On May 20th, William the Marshal totally defeated the French party at Lincoln. All day long the fight raged in the narrow streets of the old hill town, and the conquerors plundered where they could, so that they each returned to their lords as rich men, and the battle was called Lincoln Fair. Louis now found himself in a hard strait. He sought more help from France, but the fleet was scattered by the ships of the loyal sink ports under Hubert de Burra, now Justiciar, in the Dover Straits, on August 24th, and Louis himself was besieged in London by William the Marshal. On September 11th, a treaty was made by which Louis agreed to leave England on being absolved by the church, and Henry promised to forgive the rebel barons and to observe Magna Carta. So the young king was left without rival, and for two years more the land throve under the wise rule of William the Marshal. The charter was issued anew, with provisions against grants of lands to monks for the abolition of feudal services and for the regular holding of the local courts. A new forest charter was also given, in which the harsh rules of Henry II and John were withdrawn. Next, the king's wise minister banished from the kingdom the mercenaries whom King John had employed. At the beginning of 1218, many of the barons went on crusade, among them Robert Fitzwalter, who had led the lords who won the charter. Archbishop Stephen Langton had returned from Italy and added his prudent counsels to those of Pandolf, who was now legate. In 1219, the good Earl Marshal died, and Hubert de Burra was chief ruler of the land. He was not popular among the barons, who regarded him as an upstart, but he was a strong man, and gradually he brought the land to peace and quiet. In 1224, he at last managed to obtain the banishment of Fox de Brote, a ruffian whom John had employed, and who had made himself rich and powerful since his master had died. Langdon became Pope's legate, and Peter de Roche and other foreigners became gradually less prominent. In 1227, Henry declared himself of age, and from this time the influence of his personal character began to be seen. He was very unlike his father. He was a brave knight and a pious Christian, gentle, courteous, and kindly. Yet he was far from being a great man, and he had many faults. He was vain and changeable. He had none of his grandfather's wisdom and some of his father's falseness. He meant well, but he did ill, and his long reign of fifty-six years was one of the weakest, if not the worst, in English history. But nevertheless, in his own day, he seemed at times a magnificent figure. England in his day kept something of the great position she had held under the conqueror Henry I, Henry II, and Richard I. Henry III filled in Europe a position created for him, perhaps by the labors of his grandfather and uncle, brought into prominence by the failure and fall of Frederick II, the Roman Emperor, and made influential by his close connection with the other sovereigns of Christendom, but out of all proportion to his ability. He was magnificent, 
liberal, a patron of art, and a benefactor of foreigners. His reputation for wealth laid him open to the extortions of all the needy in Europe. His patronage of them left him poor, and his poverty brought out his meanness and deceit at home. It is easier, indeed, to draw a clear picture of Henry III than of many of our early kings. His reign, even more than that of Henry II, was an age of great chroniclers, and his court was honorably noted for its patronage of learned men. Matthew Paris, a monk of St. Albans, 1195-1259, was the best Latin writer of the century. He was often employed abroad on diplomatic missions, received constant information from the court, and had access to many state documents. He was a traveller, a courtier, and a politician, as well as a monk, and he was admitted to a close intimacy with the king and his brother Richard. From his lively pages we obtain a clear notion of the part which the clergy played in the politics of the time, and are able to understand how the king's character struck the men of his own day. Matthew Paris is never afraid of expressing a severe judgment on Henry's weakness, or of hinting broadly at his lack of honourable steadfastness. Besides Matthew Paris, we have Adam of Marsh, a learned Franciscan, who was honoured both by king and queen, and was the trusted counsellor of Simon de Montfort. He, who was equally at home, at the court and in literature, or serving the wretched and the vile, and performing the prime and essential duties of a friar. Thomas of Wykes, Robert of Gloucester, William of Rishanger were other writers of prominence who have left vivid pictures of the England of Henry III, and Robert Grosteste, 1175-1253, Bishop of Lincoln, in his letters has expressed with unmistakable force and truth the feeling of Englishmen with regard to the great political and religious crisis in which he was engaged. It was an age of great chroniclers, of men who were no longer content to give a bare record of facts, but who judged public events for themselves and boldly criticized the times and the men. It was an age, too, of great kings, and the Henry III, whom the contemporary historians picture for us, was little worthy to stand beside Louis the Saint of France, or Innocent IV and Gregory IX, astute and powerful popes or Alfonso the Learned of Castile, or Frederick II, the wonder of the world. The young king, when he declared he would be his own minister, did not cease to employ Hubert de Burra. Till 1232 the wise minister prevented the worst effects of the king's rashness and suspicions. In 1228 Henry fought in Wales. In 1230 he crossed to Brittany and thence passed to Gascony, and his men, under the young Richard the Marshal, to whom the king had given his sister Eleanor in marriage, obtained some success against Louis the Ninth of France. But the French wars were a constant drain on England, and Gascony, over which the king's brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall, was set to rule, was hard to govern, and again and again was in revolt against the English. Added to this, the popes, who had so wisely kept England for Henry while he was a minor, now made repeated demands for money to help them in their wars in Italy. Henry was not the man to overcome these difficulties. In 1232 he dismissed Hubert de Burra, declaring him a traitor, 
and gave england into the hands of the poitevin peter des roches bishop of winchester and the foreigners who surrounded him all the good ministers of the king's early years were now dead stephen langton had been succeeded as archbishop by edmund rich a pious scholar but a man unequal to advise in a stormy time henry foolishly offended all those who wished for a just and firm government and richard the marshal the leader of the barons was driven into open revolt and leagued with the princes of wales henry was defeated when he tried to crush the revolt earl richard tried to raise ireland but was treacherously assassinated before this the king had been forced to learn how ill he was being counselled and he dismissed bishop peter and made peace with his barons a new period began with the king's marriage in eleven thirty six his sisters had already made alliances which might prove of political import eleanor's wedding was the pledge of friendship with the constitutional baronage joan had married alexander the second king of scots in twelve thirty five isabel married the emperor frederick the second in the next year henry himself married eleanor daughter of raymond the fourth count of provence whose sisters were or became the wives of louis the ninth of france of his brother charles of anjou and of richard earl of cornwall with these foreign connections foreigners poured into england and the national feeling already aroused by the papal demands and the needs of the king's continental lands grew steadily in intensity demanding that england should support only its own folk the king was already becoming overwhelmed by financial difficulties year after year he was asking his council for more money and year after year the pope's demands also increased men everywhere spoke of the waste and prodigality of the court and protested against the avarice of rome and the corruption of the pope's officials the burden pressed most heavily on the clergy a song of the time says free and held in high esteem the clergy used to be none were cherished more or loved more heartily enslaved now betrayed brought low they are abased sore by those from whom their help should come i dare no more king and pope alike in this to one purpose hold how to make the clergy yield their silver and their gold this is the sum the pope of rome yields too much to the king to aid his crown the tithes lays down to his liking clergy and barons alike protested archbishop edmund warned henry against allowing a papal legate to land earl richard of cornwall the king's brother says matthew paris was the first to call the king to account he sharply rebuked him for the great desolation that he had made in the realm and because day after day on new-fangled and captious pretexts he spoiled his own barons of their goods and thoughtlessly bestowed all he could scrape together on the enemies of the kingdom who were plotting both against him and his realm year by year henry added to the discontent in twelve thirty eight his sister eleanor now left a widow by her husband's murder in ireland was married to simon de montfort earl of leicester son of the famous crusader of the same name who had put down the albigenses of southern france simon the younger 
had been confirmed by the favour of the king as Earl of Leicester, as heir to his mother, the daughter of Henry II's justiciar, and was high in favour at court for his chivalrous character and handsome person. The marriage excited general indignation. It was thought that Earl Simon was but another greedy foreigner, and that the king was giving himself more and more into their hands. Earl Richard of Cornwall became leader of the malcontents. At that time, says Matthew Paris, sure hopes were entertained that Earl Richard would free the land from the wretched slavery it experienced at the hands of Romans and other foreigners, and every one from boys to old men heaped constant blessings on his name but it needed years of misrule before the church and barons should be strong enough to reform the government and meanwhile matters went from bad to worse in the church the pope's demands grew year by year in twelve thirty seven came a legate otto who demanded a fifth of all the clergy's goods for a war against the emperor frederick the second his arrogance offended every one and led to a tumult at oxford where the scholars of the new-founded schools or university set upon him and drove him from the town in twelve forty earl richard and earl simon went on crusade that they might not behold the evils of the nation and the desolation of the realm and shortly after archbishop edmund left england in despair because the pope had ordered him to provide for three hundred romans in the first church benefices that fell vacant he died in the same year at pontigny where he had sought refuge like st thomas before him he was canonized in twelve forty six the pope's constant demands were not received without protest the rectors of Berkshire declared that they would not give for the war against the emperor because he had not been condemned by the judgment of the church, because as all churches had their separate patrimony, the English church ought in no wise to be taxed by or pay tribute to Rome, because the pope had no dominion or proprietorship over England, and because such demands were a robbery of the poor and an attack upon the just rights of the English patrons the protest represented the great mass of english feeling in twelve forty one the king had caused his wife's uncle boniface of savoy to be elected archbishop of canterbury in twelve forty two the pope sent a new extortioner martin by name in twelve forty four even the king protested against the papal demands and when he found that the revenues held by italians in england amounted to sixty thousand marks more than the revenue of the crown was very angry and began to detest the insatiate greed of the roman court yet the abuse was not checked seven years later grosseteste declared that the pope's nominees had revenues within the realm three times as great as the royal income the english parliament as the great council had now come to be called sent a formal protest to the pope which was read at the council of lyons but the pope innocent the fourth took no heed year after year the exaction continued and the new archbishop boniface was more active in asserting his own rights than in protecting those of the church one great bishop alone stood out robert grosteste who had been rector of the new order of friars of st francis and who was a devout and holy man of great wisdom and honesty had been elected 
bishop of lincoln in twelve thirty five he reformed his own vast diocese with the aid of the friars and was especially stern in enforcing the obedience of the monks to their rules men called him the destroyer of the monks but all knew his true spiritual earnestness he was a friend of earl simon to whom men were beginning to look as the leader of the party that sought reform he talked with him and with his friend adam of marsh of government and was the tutor of his son but while simon was preparing to seek a reform of the state grosteste was fighting for a reform of the church he ceaselessly opposed the pope's attempts to tax england for his own benefit and protested in person before innocent the fourth against the corruption and avarice of his court at last in twelve fifty three the pope demanded that he should give the next vacant prebend in his cathedral to his nephew a boy an italian not in holy orders and quite without any intention of coming to england grosteste absolutely refused in a letter declaring that such a demand was made for destruction and was utterly incompatible with the holiness of the apostolic see he died shortly afterwards protesting with his last breath against the evils of the time the pope's demands had now taken a new form in twelve fifty two innocent the fourth offered to richard of cornwall the kingdom of sicily of which he declared that frederick the second was rightly deprived in twelve fifty five henry accepted it for his son edmund but the barons refused to provide men or money to win a kingdom from a christian monarch or to gain a heritage outside the land for the king's son while henry was thus falling more and more under the control of the popes and thus bringing about a crisis in the relations between himself and his barons his foreign dominions were a constant drain on his resources and his hold over them was slowly being relaxed gascony was ruled at one time by richard of cornwall at another by simon de montfort neither could subdue the turbulent barons simon became engaged in money transactions which induced him to pledge the king's credit without asking his consent the discovery of this as well as the constant complaints of the gascons against his hard hand made an irreconcilable breach between him and henry the king himself made three expeditions to france but in spite of some temporary successes was always in the end worsted war with louis the ninth was a constant feature of this period of the reign but the campaigns were mostly unimportant and the english took only the faintest interest in it in twelve forty two there was a great battle at taiburg in which henry narrowly escaped capture in twelve fifty three henry spent a year in gascony but achieved nothing it was indeed only through the generosity of the french king that he retained his foreign lands at all meanwhile the feeling of the barons was being more and more clearly expressed in twelve thirty seven and twelve forty two the great council seriously warned the king of the evils which he was bringing upon the country in twelve forty four twelve barons were chosen to treat with henry when he again demanded money simon de montfort and richard of cornwall stood together among the twelve and demanded 
that the king's advisers should be elected by the council and should be compelled to see to the execution of reforms. In 1248, 1249, and 1255, the demands were repeated. All that seemed gained was a renewal of the charters, the Great Charter and the Charter of the Forest, but they were no better observed. Yet all the time the barons were growing in power, and they were training an instrument which should serve them when the time came to act decisively. The old great council in which sat the bishops and greater abbots, and all the king's tenants-in-chief, was gradually learning to make itself the mouthpiece of the popular feeling, and to claim the right to execute the popular will. The king was obliged to grant concessions, which implied that it was something more than a mere meeting of his vassals, called together to hear his will, and to tell him in what way they would provide for obeying it. In 1254, when he was himself in Gascony, there were summoned to the council, which was to be asked to grant supplies for the war, not only the feudal tenants of the crown, but two knights from each shire elected by the county court. Thus the local courts were brought into connection with the great council, and the great council assumed something of the appearance of a national and representative body. The council, too, began to be called a parliament, a place where men talked. There began to be real discussions, not merely the dumb acceptance of the king's commands. It needed but one final folly of the king's to make the council stand forth to demand in the name of all classes the ending of the misrule and disorder. In 1257 the time came. The king now stood alone. Richard of Cornwall, after his marriage with the queen's sister, had ceased to care about English reforms and had gone overseas. Some of the German electors had now chosen him as king of the Romans, and eager to push his claim to be emperor, he ceased his old constitutional protests. Sir Edward, the king's son, had not yet turned to serious things, but was fighting on the Welsh border, and leagued with the Mortimers, who ruled in the marches, against the princes of the native Welsh. The foreigners whom Henry had brought to England, his wife's kindred, and the Lusignan, his half-brothers, for his mother Isabel of Angoulême had married her old lover after John's death, were not the men to whom Englishmen would listen when once they had taken in hand to set the kingdom right. In 1258, at a meeting of the Great Council of Parliament, Richard of Clare, Earl of Gloucester, almost the only survivor of the houses of the great earls who had been so plentiful a century back, declared that the time had come to redress the grievances under which all classes groaned. The clergy were taxed to pay for the war on behalf of the young Edmund, called King of Sicily, and Henry was pledged to pay for the Pope's campaigning. On May 2, 1258, the king agreed that a commission of twenty-four barons should be appointed to draw up a scheme of reform. On June 11th, at Oxford, a long list of grievances were presented. It was the result of long and anxious discussion by the barons in the council among themselves and with the friars' preachers, and before it was finally produced, all who framed it, giving their right hand to one another as a pledge of faith, swore they would not fail to prosecute their design through loss of lands or money, 
nor through favour to themselves or their relations and after renewing their league and reiterating their oath they confirmed the design which they had conceived that neither for life death or holdings for hatred or for love or for any cause whatever would they be bent or weakened in their intent to regain praiseworthy laws and to cleanse from foreigners this kingdom which is the native land of men of noble birth and of their ancestors so excited was the feeling that men called it the mad parliament the chief articles of the petition of the barons were those which demanded number one redress of the illegal extension of the law of wardship by which the king took the land of minors and compelled them whether male or female to marry whom he would number two that the king's castles should be held by natives not foreigners number three that the forest laws and the king's encroachments on the barons forests might be modified number four that the king's dues might not be unlawfully extended number five that the jews and the new christian bankers and money-lenders the corsons or men of cahor might be restrained the barons leaders were richard earl of gloucester simon earl of leicester who now stood forward as the foe of foreigners and friend of the barons and walter of cantaloupe bishop of worcester henry soon saw that it was useless to struggle and accepted the provisions of oxford june twelve fifty eight a commission of twenty-four was appointed the justiciar chancellor and other officers were sworn to obey them and then the king's council was chosen anew and it was ordered that the state of the church should be amended and the king's household reformed and that parliaments be held twice a year the londoners joyfully welcomed these declarations and many of the foreigners foreseeing what would be their fate fled at once from the land in a solemn scene the provisions were confirmed by the king and all the great men the bishops stood with lighted tapers in their hands says robert of gloucester an oxford monk who was very likely himself present and the king and the other high men of the land likewise and the bishops cursed all those who should undo these laws and then the king and others said amen and threw down their tapers to confirm the curse but it was clear enough that this would not mend all wrongs henry was eager to be released and the barons were alarmed at the fickleness and inscrutable duplicity of the king he saw that simon de montfort was now his rival and he knew not what his design might be one day they met in a storm when henry took refuge where the earl was dwelling what do you fear said simon the storm is now past henry sternly answered the thunder and lightning do i greatly fear but thee by the eyes of god i fear more than all the thunder and lightning in the universe in january twelve fifty nine king richard returned from germany and was compelled to take oath to obey the provisions later in the year henry and simon went to france and all claims on normandy and anjou were yielded up to louis the ninth in return for the confirmation of the limousin perigord and quercy and a sum of money already the barons were beginning to quarrel among themselves and on october thirteenth twelve fifty nine edward the king's son with the bachelory knights or small feudal tenants not barons of england 
demanded that the twenty-four should put forth some of the reforms they had promised. This request could not be refused, and accordingly the provisions of Westminster were issued, 1259. These restricted the powers of the sheriffs, and forbade the grant of land to churches without leave of the donor's lord, but were mostly concerned with matters of feudal interest, and showed that the barons, unlike those who won Magna Carta, were not caring for the people or the church. Thus few changes were made, only the government was not the king's, but Earl Simon's. Richard of Clare, Earl of Gloucester, who had thus far acted as de Montfort's helper, died in 1262. In 1261, the king fortified himself in the Tower of London, and it was so hard to make peace between him and Simon that it was agreed to submit their differences and the rights as to the provisions to the arbitration of the wise and holy Louis the Ninth of France. The Pope had absolved Henry from his oath to the provisions, but Sir Edward and King Richard stood firm to their words. The next years were years of great disorder. Henry was away for months in France, and Edward was making war on the Welsh. The Londoners hated and despised the Queen Eleanor, and their attacks on his mother at last made Edward ready to join in fighting the barons. War began at Gloucester in 1263, but on January 23, 1264, King Louis issued his award called the Mise of Amiens. By this, all the disputed points were given in the king's favor. He was declared free to choose whom he would as ministers. The provisions were annulled, but the great charter and the charter of the forest were confirmed. Simon would not submit, though he had vowed to accept the decision. He was at this time fighting on behalf of the Welsh princes against the lords of the marches. He seemed eager only to make a great power for himself. He had boldly won the battle for reform, but when it was won, his character seemed to change. He would hear of nothing now but his own supremacy. His party did not begin well. Early in 1264, being in need of money, they slew nearly 400 Jews who dwelt in peace in London, little thinking, as the Christian chronicler says, who looked with horror on the crime, that harm would happen unto them. Great sums were seized from the richest Jews, and this much was taken by Earl Simon, so that, says the chronicler, who favored the royal party, he might not be free from the guilt of robbery and murder. It was the Londoners, indeed, who made peace impossible. Negotiations they broke up, and they continued to insult both king and queen. War broke out in the spring. The king was at first successful, he took Northampton and Nottingham, and Edward took Tutbury, the castle of one of the barons, Earl Ferrers of Derby. Then the armies marched southwards, and after fighting at Rochester and Tunbridge, met early in May at Lewis. Simon made offers of peace, telling Henry he wished to free him from his foes, but Henry knew of no other foes than those in Simon's army, and on May 14th they joined battle. Sir Edward routed the Londoners and avenged their insults to his mother, but Earl Simon defeated the rest of the royal army, and both Henry, King of England, and Richard, King of the Romans, were captured. 
then henry was compelled to make the mise of lewis by which he vowed to obey the charter to employ only englishmen to submit to a new arbitration and to give his son edward and his brother's son henry as hostages then a parliament appointed three councillors earl simon the bishop of chichester and the young earl gilbert of gloucester to nominate nine who should be a permanent council without whom the king might not act at the end of the year a summons was issued for another parliament to this the bishops and abbots were called and five earls and eighteen barons and also for the first time in english history not only two knights from each shire but also two burghers from such of the towns as earl simon thought loyal to him thus a great step was taken following that of twelve fifty four toward bringing the people of the shire courts into touch with the government of the land but earl simon says the chronicler who favoured him was not content with keeping the king a captive which indeed was contrary to magna carta but took the royal castles in his own power disposing of the whole realm according to his will and his chief offence was that he claimed the entire possession of the revenues of the kingdom the ransom of the captives and other profits which according to the convention ought to have been equally divided between him and earl gilbert his sons too quarrelled with earl gilbert then edward who had been in charge of henry earl simon's son managed to escape by pretence of a riding match and gathered troops in the welsh marshes edward defeated the earl's son simon at kenilworth and on august fourth twelve sixty five surrounded the earl's army in evesham town simon marched out of the streets and up the hill toward edward's forces and a hot fight ensued the king whom simon had always led about with him was dragged into the fight by the barons and was in great danger as he was disguised he could only call out i am henry the old king of england and do not strike me i am too old to fight at last when his helmet fell off he was recognized and saved by his son's troops the day went ill for the barons hemmed in on all sides they fought gallantly but hopelessly and earl simon fell dead in the thick of the fray for the next two years some of the barons held out but they were at last overcome and by an agreement at kenilworth one of the montfort castles october twelve sixty six the charters were confirmed and the barons admitted to peace on payment of a fine finally a parliament at marlborough confirmed most of the reforms that had been made during the years of strife for long years men mourned the great earl simon in spite of his cruelty and his ambition he had seemed to many to be fighting for the good of church and state and the government that he gave was better than the king's misrule we cannot say what he had planned to do in the end whether he would have given up all the power he had won to a parliament or even to the other barons certainly he never gave up the control of the king or the country to other hands but the people loved him and the friars mourned his loss in many a poem and tale his sons were evil men and two of them sacrilegiously slew young henry of germany king richard's son as he was at prayer in the cathedral of viterbo as a retaliation for their father's death the last years of the old king henry's reign were peaceable 
his son edward led many gallant knights with him to a crusade in twelve seventy while he was at Acre in twelve seventy one the treacherous emir of jaffa sent a messenger who stabbed him with a poisoned dagger he was near dying but the skill of an english surgeon who cut out the poisoned flesh saved his life soon after he was called home by news of his father's illness he left the holy land to the mercies of the saracens and before the end of the century the last citadel of the christian kingdom was taken edward heard on his way home of his father's death henry expired on november sixth twelve seventy two and edward was everywhere peaceably accepted as his successor he did not hurry home for he and his good wife eleanor of castile whom he had married in twelve fifty four were royally entertained by the pope the burgundians the flemings and the french king he landed in england on august second twelve seventy four england had changed greatly since henry the third became king men had grown more to feel the national unity and the barons had cast off all lingering attachment to their norman lands the great council had been growing into an assembly that talked and acted in earnest the law courts had been developed and the king's bench for suits in which the crown was concerned the common pleas for suits between subjects the exchequer for revenue cases and the chancery for suits which could not be brought before the other courts were all in working england had changed in many ways but most of all perhaps in the growth of a new and powerful religious feeling through the coming of the friars as the towns grew and trade developed as the population increased and men of all classes had a wider outlook the church became unable to meet all the demands upon her for instruction in learning and righteousness the parish clergy were poor and ignorant the monks who had done so much for england a century before now that their building was finished and their estates were laid out came less and less in contact with the poor except in the country and in the heart of the largest towns there was need to minister to the thousands who gathered on the outskirts of the cities and settled outside the walls free from the restrictions of the guilds during the century eleven fifty to twelve fifty a large population had grown up which was outside the care of the parish clergy and very often outside the law too men who left the country villages when they could and wandered in search of work or settled near the great centres of trade disease too was rife among the poor folk who were huddled together within and without the walls of the towns leprosy and typhus and malignant fevers carried off many victims there was great need for physicians both of soul and body the need was supplied by the heroic work of the friars two orders were founded early in the thirteenth century they both called themselves mendicants they were to have no property and to live wholly on alms the franciscans were founded by st francis of assisi who gave up all he had called poverty his bride and brought together poor brothers to revive the work of christ on earth their work was to minister to the poor the vile and the sick the dominicans founded by st dominic a spanish canon were intended to preach and thus to awake the masses to a sense of higher things the dominicans who came to england in twelve twenty were called black friars 
the franciscans who came four years later were grey friars others followed orders founded in imitation of them the white friars or carmelites and the austin friars the work of these men was quite different from that of the monks they went everywhere entering the parishes of clergy who were negligent and the districts which no priest served and preaching teaching tending the sick and ministering to the dying at first the franciscans were pledged to avoid all secular learning but it became impossible to avoid entering into the intellectual work of the day and in a few years they and the preachers became the leaders of thought at oxford and cambridge as well as in the foreign schools Grosteste was the first rector or head of the franciscans in england and adam of marsh was among the brethren devoted as they were from the first to the towns where the keenest life congregated they soon came to influence the nation very deeply in politics and in social life as well as in religion men came everywhere to live more simply to be more charitable and friendly to each other to think less of the distinction of class and clan and more of relieving the sufferings of the sick and poor hospitals were built and endowed great nobles made rules of simple life for their households men and women in high place joined themselves to the order without leaving their work in the world but pledged to live lives of self-denial and charity medicine began to be carefully studied and the natural sciences in religion the change was still more marked instead of being content with a hasty hearing of mass the people rich and poor came to hear sermons to attend religious ceremonies and to devote time and labour to work for each other a sterner life began to prevail among the clergy the bishops took care to see that the monks kept the rules of their order and the clergy who had often been silently allowed to marry in spite of the custom and orders of the church abroad were ordered to put away their wives the parish priests were ordered to lead the people to devoutly and attentively hear the sermons of the friars of both orders and to confess to them and soon the bishops come to say that the face of the land was changed that a new standard of duty was raised up among all classes and that to them that dwell in the valley of the shadow of death hath the light shined going in and out continually among the people and themselves poor as the poorest and often of humble birth the friars came to know and to express the feelings of the people about the government and the chief men of the day the oxford scholars and the wandering friars wrote popular songs bewailing the wrongs of the church and of the state and shrewdly glancing at the faults of king and barons and pope and bishops thus the franciscans and the dominicans threw all their strength into the struggle against the misrule of henry the third and helped greatly to give to the reforming movement the success it obtained while the great earl and the noble barons with a few of the bishops led the fight against papal and royal tyranny and the historians of the great monastic houses wrote the truths of the struggle for the eyes of the future the friars and the lesser clergy gave a voice to the popular feeling and showed what it was that the people clerk and lay really needed and how they regarded the great issues and the great men thus with edmund rich and robert grosteste and walter of cantaloupe to speak boldly on public grievances with great friars such as bonaventure and robert kilwardby to be worthy of high office in the church and scholars such as alexander hales 
Roger Bacon and Duns Scotus to guide the progress of thought. England under Henry III did not lack leaders among churchmen, and in the state Edward I himself succeeded to the best traditions of the reformers of his father's day. End of chapter 5